So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. This is, oh goodness, this is the wonderful Green Majority, Canada's greatest environmental radio show, and we are on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on your excellent local community radio station. And my name is David Hostetter. I'm Lauren Latour, and I need it to be clear that when we say Canada's greatest environmental news show, we're joking a little bit. But when we say that your local radio station is excellent, we're not joking about that. We are genuinely very grateful for local community-driven radio and media. And we are not being disdainful of that, though we are being self-effacing when we say we're great. Because I mean, like, yeah, I think I'm great in like an egotistical, like crazy evil id brain way. But I also know that we're not all that great all the time. Just trying to stunt off the bat. Just trying just trying to just trying to dosy dough in front of the club. Just trying to just trying to front a bit in my Friday fit. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe I need to instead of carrying Wednesday evening energy into the show, <laughs> I need to start carrying Friday afternoon. Because those are two distinctly different vibes. <laughs> Any long-term listeners, let us know if there was like a distinct vibe shift. Well, the vibe shift happened. On March 13th, 2020. <laughs> yeah, coincided with COVID. So, so yes, there has been a vibe shift since we stopped recording this live on Fridays. Oops, my bad. It is a Wednesday evening. If I swear now, you can get it out in post. But if I yeah. swear on the radio when we record live, then we just break rules and we get in trouble. Yeah, I can edit out all of all of Stefan's meandering diatribes. Yeah, he's the he's he's the brother that does that. Excuse me. <laughs> anyway, in case you haven't noticed, listeners, it's just the two of us today. So it's like dad's away and the two kids have been left to make themselves macaroni and cheese with hot dogs for dinner. So you're in for you're in for a fun next you're in for a fun 15 minutes before Stefan comes back with the interview. My diatribes are very symbolically significant and raise the spiritual vibrational level of not only the listeners, but the co-hosts, and even the retroactively influenced interview interviewees on the program. Uh, and that's indisputable. So Stefan will be interviewing Ali Rajot and Megan Bro from Fridays for Future about the Fridays for Future Climate March, which is returning, which is going to happen on the 23rd of September. Mm-hmm. Definitely the 23rd. Okay, that's a fr- that's next Friday. And the following Friday is, natural, is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. So yeah. like... It's a couple big Fridays in a row. People being like, we actually care about things, Mr. Government. Maybe you should consider that. Yeah. After everybody takes Monday off to celebrate slash mourn the queen dying. What we need to do. So we're, we're going to we're about to get into climate environment news. But first, what we need to do, Canada 
had a specialty coin that it put out in 1967 to uh, celebrate the 100-year anniversary of the forming of this uh, this indisputably great nation. On the on the coin, on one of the coins, or maybe as every coin, but there is a centennial coin which has the queen as a skeleton on the back of the coin. No, it doesn't. It does. I've seen the coin. You can purchase it online. And so what we need going forward is to have a skeleton queen on the coin forever and praise the skeleton, publicly display the skeleton. That's pretty metal. Literally metal. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into news. Nobody's listening anymore. Okay, yeah. So the skeleton queen. The World Meteorological Association has put out its 2022 United in Science report, which brings together the opinions of the largest international climate science organizations. The association writes, quote, Greenhouse gas concentrations continue to rise to record highs. Fossil fuel emission rates are now above pre-pandemic levels after a temporary drop due to lockdowns. The ambition of emissions reduction pledges for 2030 need to be seven times higher to be in line with the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal of the Paris Agreement. The past seven years were the warmest on record there is a 48% chance that during at least one year in the next five years, the annual mean temperature will temporarily be 1.5 degrees Celsius higher than the 1850-1900 average. As global warming increases, quote-unquote tipping points in the climate system cannot be ruled out. A study published in the journal Science has found that even at the level of warming we've already reached, we're at risk of pushing past climate tipping points and causing irreversible changes. The study reads, quote, Climate tipping points are conditions beyond which changes in a part of the climate system become self-perpetuating. These changes may lead to abrupt, irreversible, and dangerous impacts with serious implications for humanity. Currently, the world is heading toward around 2 to 3 degrees Celsius of global warming. At best, if all net zero pledges and nationally determined contributions are implemented, it could reach just below 2 degrees Celsius. This would lower tipping point risks somewhat, but would still be dangerous as it could trigger multiple climate tipping points. Tim Radford writes for the Energy Mix, quote, A wheelbarrow empties swiftly once beyond its tipping point. The collapse of the polar ice caps will be much, much slower, and the point of no return less obvious. But at some point, such a collapse will become unstoppable. Nobody can be sure of where that point lies on the temperature spectrum. A study in Nature Climate Change employs a new methodology to study the melting of the Greenland ice sheet, suggesting that significant sea level rise is now inevitable which means that major adaptation measures will be needed for coastal cities and low-lying areas. A global engineering firm is predicting that climate disasters in the form of floods, droughts, and storms will cost Canada $139 billion through the coming 30 years. The report is called Aquanomics. A study published in Communications, Earth, and Environment is projecting that current CO2 emissions trends will cause there to be, by 2100, weeks on end of temperatures too hot for anyone to be outside in tropical regions. Hong Kong has just had its record for the hottest day in September broken twice in one week. 
Shabazz Sharif, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, says that parts of his country look like the ocean now. 1,343 people have officially died so far from the floods. And now that the floods recede, uh, there are fears of waterborne diseases emerging. Russia has turned off its Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline to Europe. The United States is helping with energy, energy demand in Germany to help them through the winter. Energy prices in the UK are expected to rise 80% this winter. Liz Truss, the appointed successor of Boris Johnson, is now the Prime Minister of the UK, and she has chosen an apparent climate change denier to lead the energy ministry, and she has plans to increase oil and gas drilling in the North Sea. India will miss its renewable energy goals this year by a half. And Vanuatu, a country of 300,000 people made up of a string of 80 islands, has produced a costed plan to deal with losses and damages from climate change. The plan could become a blueprint to help other countries receive international aid for climate damages as well, since rich countries have justified not giving money for damages because they claim not to know what climate-vulnerable countries specifically need. Yeah, so just jumping in really quickly um, to to talk about this uh, Vanuatu plan story. So um, we've talked about, A, we've talked about loss and damage on this show a lot, but B, we've also talked about NDCs or nationally determined contributions that each nation um, who is like party to the Paris Agreement has to submit every year ahead of COP. They're not necessarily altered every year, I don't think. Either way, they submit them. Um, and and it kind of lays out like this: these, these are our climate commitments um, in so many words. And usually most climate plans, most nationally determined contributions um, include like a target for emissions reduction. And then they dig into like mitigation and adaptation measures um, that have probably a certain degree of finance or, or, or in some cases requests for finance tied to them. Um, what have never been submitted before this, this new report from Van or this, um, this plan from Vanuatu is kind of doing it for the first time is in addition to outlining mitigation and adaptation measures, they're also outlining loss and damage measures, which like Dave said, is kind of groundbreaking because it allows them to then say to nations in the global North, like Canada, um, this is exactly what we mean when we say loss and damage. And this is exactly how much money we need when we say we need loss and damage funding. And you no longer global north country get to say well we don't know what you mean we don't know how much money you need so therefore we can't help you like this is a way of them being like no we do know exactly what we mean by loss and damage and we do know what we need and it's xyz so this reuters story kind of digs into a little uh digs into the report or the plan rather a little bit and it outlines that the new loss and damage measures that this vanuatu um, nationally determined contribution outline um, the, the measures it, it talks about are specifically offering affordable micro insurance, uh, ensuring the construction of public buildings and infrastructure uh, minimizes risks, providing essential health care, protecting disaster displaced people, and possible relocations of communities away from threats. So again, those are all things that it's trying to um, remedy the effects of like already felt climate disaster. So it's like, again, with like mitigation and adaptation, you're adapting your country um, or you're adapting infrastructure in order to kind of like offset the worst effects of climate disaster. In mitigation, you are maybe adapting infrastructure to prevent climate disaster. So it's like 
Mitiga mitigative measures are solar panels. Adaptive measures are a seawall. And then loss and damage is like insurance to pay for the damage that you couldn't adapt away from or money to help folks relocate once their homes have been swept away by floods if that makes sense. So anyway, yeah, this is a really cool, like Dave said, kind of groundbreaking new development and plan that's been put forward because of what it means at the international level, because it, it's, it's one step closer to like not letting wealthy nations off the hook when it comes to their climate finance contributions um, and their responsibilities to global South really, really at-risk nations like Vanuatu, because like Dave said, it's made up of something like 80 islands, most of which I presume are quite low-lying. Right. And of course, the problem is like, there can really be no hook, can there? If, 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 if the United States can ignore international law, what are we really talking about in terms of the, in terms of the negotiation stuff, right? It's like, it's like moral, ethical pressure. It could it could be economic pressure in the sense that like you know you could be screwed over by wars and migration in the future, and the people who are working for your corporations now either will not exist or not be able to work for you in the future. Well, like yeah, basically because it's like in in the case of these um, sort of like international treaties, yes, you're signing up for it, yes, you're making a commitment, but there are no legal ramifications. It's not like it's not like you're going to be pulled into like the the international criminal court and like Biden's going to be fined or whatever for not sort of like upholding his end of the deal when it comes to the Paris Agreement. So like at least not as far as I'm aware, if anybody out there is is more well versed in in the legalese of these things, please correct me. But my understanding is like, yeah, there is no sort of like um, legal infrastructure to hold these global North nations accountable. What it actually is, is like you said, it's like appealing to like their moral and ethical um, and kind of um, the co-benefits that they could experience from bolstering their international climate finance contributions. Like when when Justin Trudeau bumps up our our climate finance contributions, or like just this past week, we've increased the amount of money we're sending to um, Pakistan to help people um, who are experiencing uh, displacement from floods. He's not necessarily doing that because of like a moral and ethical obligation. He's doing it because people were upset and because it looks really bad. So it's like it's a reputation thing, depending on how you as a nation place yourself on the world stage. You can appeal to with the states, you're appealing to like their position as a hegemonic power and like big daddy of the planet. And with Canada, you're appealing to the fact that like we're supposed to be the nice guy. There's this thing at COP that I'm almost positive I've talked about before called fossil of the day. And it sounds so silly, but basically it's like civil society organizations, like your nonprofit groups, your labor organizations at, um, at the end of the day, we'll say, um, say Canada performs really poorly in the negotiations. Canada maybe um, doesn't commit to, for instance, if Canada's like, no, I don't want to give money to loss and damage, then the civil society organizations get together and say, okay, well, we're going to give Canada the fossil of the day award and it's sort of this like jokey campy thing where everybody's like you're the you're the freaking worst and you're the fossil of the day and we dislike you for what you're doing and it's funny because within the cop sphere like canada is a country that actually cares when we get a fossil of the day it seems so silly but like that that little version of shaming actually is kind of effective in getting canada's negotiators to like maybe do better the next day or maybe try a little bit harder um to 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 sort of like 
behave in a way that isn't going to make the angos angry. That being said, there's no point in awarding Russia the fossil of the day because Russia's going to be like, cool, we don't care, whatever. What, you don't like us? Sad. Justin Trudeau exemplifies Canada perfectly. It's like we're this uh, boyish, too old to be as immature as we are, very obsessed with self-image, sort of uh, platitudinous uh ditzy little ditzy little dancing thing yeah and i think honestly people hating trudeau so much is it's like a form of self-loathing like that's what it is it's 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 me hating myself (laughs) we're like oh that's what we are wow (laughs) he holds a mirror up to us to to us that's his act that's his acting background that's good (laughs) canada is a privileged white male drama teacher pretending to be a black or brown man who's like embarrassingly vain and gives so much of a shit and cares so much about what other people think about him but it's like i'm a nice guy i swear so canada has now apologized to the pipikasis first nation for what it is called a radical social engineering project carried out from 1897 to 1954. The project involved Canada moving captive indigenous people from school camps to work camps, forcing them to work on farms in a nation they never belonged to. So this is, uh, they're, they're, they're taking people from residential schools so the, the school camps that they put them into, force them into. And then when they take them out of those schools, when they've quote-unquote graduated, they then place them into another nation they never belonged to and then, and then they, to get them to farm. For like 50, 57 years, this program lasted. Uh, and Canada paid Pipikasis a $150 million settlement last year. The province of Manitoba has been found to have stolen... million from Indigenous Child and Family Services agencies from 2006 to 2019, and an additional $83 million from other child services, such as services for children with disabilities. So these are programs that were set up in order to have um, equivalent child services uh, across the country. I guess government officials from Manitoba just decided that they should keep that money. Not really sure why. They just kind of stole that. And finally, the Sibignagati First Nation in Nova Scotia has again attempted to start its lawful treaty-protected treaty protected right to a self-regulated fishery. But our government, through the DFO, is still not accepting its own court ruling from 1999 that says that Mi'kmaq nations have a right to regulate their own fisheries, <clears throat> provided they're not producing a massive commercial harvest. Uh, the DFO has seized 6,000 lobsters so far. This is about the politics of lobster fishing on the East Coast. Uh, Sibignagati has previously faced arson and intimidation from other local fishers who do not want them to do what our treaty agrees that they can do. And so first, uh, was it last year or was it the year before? They had launched their fishery. It was the year before, I think, right? They decided they'd had enough of waiting 20 years after this court decision to 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 wait for the government to put out the proper statements for them to do have their own fish have their own lobster fisheries 
Um, and so they decided just to start their lobster fisheries, which our law says they can do. But fisher local fishers, as we report, as we as as we were talking about at the time, stole their lobster, destroyed their boats, burned down an entire lobster pound to try to prevent them from doing this. And this is like this is a, these are indigenous fishers pulling out of a very relatively small catch of lobster. And now the DFO, which is our Department of Fisheries and Oceans, is also preventing the fishery from, from finally starting. So our law says it can happen, but our institution is saying no. And our institution is still refusing to, to deal with it in a proper way. So they're just sort of stalling everything. It's so shameful. And it's just, it's a, it's a really good example of the fact that um, we can try us as speaking here as like a settler, um, white person, white woman. Um, we can try to say that like colonialism is Canada's history, but like colonialism is Canada's present. We are still denying treaty rights and inherent rights to indigenous peoples who live on this land. Um, and like it is, it's, deeply shameful in a way that like we clearly don't take truth and reconciliation seriously because we are still actively engaging in these harmful colonial practices and still actively denying the rights enshrined in these treaties that are like theoretically supposed to be the guiding documents for our relationships as settlers with indigenous peoples on these lands so anyway um but the last thing I wanted to talk about really briefly before we go away today, or before we we hand the reins over to Steph um, for his interview with Fridays for Future, is that uh, Pierre Polyev uh, won the conservative leadership race last week. Um, and that is a bummer. And I'm sure we're all talking about it with our friends and loved ones because I sure as heck can't shut up about it. Um, there's a lot of arguments that I've heard as to why this maybe isn't a big deal. And I'm firmly in camp. This is a big deal. Um, I was reading uh, an article earlier today that was like pulling up um, some Ipsos polling that was like, well, yes, he has support from conservatives, but he's not as popular as Sheree is amongst everyday Canadians or like non-party member, non-conservative party Canadians. And in my mind, it's like, okay, cool. Like that's that doesn't mean anything. He's not a household name yet. That doesn't mean he's not going to be popular. The only reason Sheree was able to like beat him in these polls amongst non-party member Canadians is because Sheree has name recognition. So like that right there is not an argument in his favor. Other things I've heard about are like, well, he's not identified as a social conservative. He isn't overtly anti-immigration and he isn't anti-abortion. Um, and that may be true, but Pial Polyev is still like the top candidate for two anti-abortion organizations that were encouraging people to sign up to vote for him in this leadership race. And like, let's remember that Trump necessarily wasn't either of those things when he first got started in his leadership race um, way back when. It was once he realized that those were like winning slogans as like a faux populist that those were like that those were things that he pivoted towards and 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 made the basis of of his campaign and the basis of his presidency um so like when you've got somebody like this who he is a career politician he's been around since he was i think something like there's a really really great qp release um that was put out as soon as he was elected that like he has been he's been a career politician since he was 24 which isn't an inherently bad thing um like, I don't actually have anything against career politicians, but the thing is, it's like for him to be out in public 
trying to posit himself as like a man of the people and a populist and somebody who's fighting for freedom and fighting for the everyday person when his voting track record doesn't support that. And he's been raking in like, I don't know, a six figure salary since he was 24 years old. Like it doesn't hold up. Like if I can for a quick second, I'm just going to read this, this QP release. It's fantastic. Statement from Mark Hancock, national president of the Canadian Union of Public Employees on Pierre Polyev winning the conservative party leadership. He says, it's too bad that unlike Andrew Scheer, Pierre Polyev does not hold American citizenship because he would be right at home as governor of a state like Alabama. Pierre's a career politician who's been collecting a six-figure salary on the public's dime since he was 24, and he spent every minute of his time in office fighting against fair wages, good pensions, and a better life for working people. He is not a worker, and he definitely doesn't get what it means to be a member of the working class. Pierre has spent his leadership campaign making the Conservative Party a cozier place for far-right extremists and conspiracy theorists in order to sell memberships. This isn't your parents' Conservative Party or even Stephen Harper's Conservative Party. It's now Pierre's Convoy Party of Canada. His leadership will be a disaster for working people in Canada. Um, and that the last, sorry, that was his statement back to Lauren now the 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 part of that statement that I really hone in on especially is his support for the convoy because he was exceptionally in support of the convoy there's photos of him at the convoy there's photos of him with like with pretty high profile convoyers and again we need to remind people that the convoy wasn't actually about masks it wasn't actually just about vaccines it was about this version of faux populism that is deeply racist and deeply regressive at its heart so if you're not worried and you're not talking about Pierre Polyev yet, you will be soon and you should be now. That's the problem of, of how of how to disentangle the idea of working class, a working class movement from the convoy. Right. It's 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 seen. I don't, I don't know anything about the leaders of the convoy or it's or its actual makeup, but it's it seems to be seen popularly as. A working class thing. They're like, they're like, we we lost our jobs, or our jobs are threatened because of the of COVID measures, and so we're taking a stand, right? It's 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 a scene as a populist, as a popular movement. Yeah, and and I mean, to a degree, it's like, I'm sure there are people who have a better understanding of the statistics and like the demographic breakdown of the convoy, but it's it would be disingenuous for me to say that there are no there's nobody in the working class who's in support of the convoy. There 100% are working class people in support of the convoy and that's because the convoy speaks to them. The convoy says like you as an everyday working class person are being gamed by the system. And that is correct in that they are being gamed by the system. However, the solutions that it proposes in order to push back on that like gamification and that racketeering of the system by or like of the system towards working class people, like those solutions are disingenuous. The solutions to people being poor and downtrodden and not supported by the system don't and should not be xenophobic and they should not look like cutting taxes for the wealthy and they should not look like privatization of healthcare and education. And those are all things that the conservative party under Pierre Polyev would, would move towards. It's privatization of those sectors of public society, which do need to be provided by our government and do need to be equally available for everybody. But it's really, really easy for him to get out in front of a microphone and say things like, I'm fighting for your freedom and your freedom looks like choice. And people being like, yeah, okay, that sounds that sounds about right. Um, and we on the left need to do a way better job of pushing back against that. And there are lots of reasons as to why we've been ineffective so far. 
as previewed earlier on the show, my name is Seven Hostetter, and I am here with Ali Rajot and Megan Bro, two organizers with the Fridays for Future Toronto. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, no worries. Um, so as a way to get uh, a sense of the two of you, maybe each of you can answer the question of how you first got involved in the climate strike movement. I've been an environmental activist for a long time. I think as long as I can remember, it's always been a topic that was interesting to me and you know, was involved in my school. And as, as many of, of us probably have been trying to be involved in my community. Uh, but I think what really made me into an activist more than just an advocate or a concerned citizen was um, when the school climate strike movement started around the world, realizing that nothing was happening in Toronto. And uh, um, at the same time that coincided when uh, with uh, the election of Doug Ford. And so I'll be honest, that kind of the, the joint uh, prompt to see a government scrapping envir every environmental program we had, and then the prompt of seeing youth in Europe uh, start rallying and, and having this concept of climate strike were the two factors that combined into me uh, starting the Toronto chapter and, and sticking with it ever since. Um, yeah, similar story for me. The strikes really inspired me to get involved. Growing up, I had always been um, involved in my school and my neighborhood and learning about different issues I was passionate about. Um, and as soon as I saw these strike posters going up all over Toronto, I knew I had to get involved. So I emailed Friday's Future Toronto and I was like, hey, my mom won't allow me to skip school to go to the climate strike. Is there anything else I can do? Um, and now I'm organizing the climate strikes. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I think in a couple of questions, I get to sort of how young people get involved. And it sounds like your story is exactly a, a great example of that. Um, so I look forward to hearing more about that. But before we get there, there is an upcoming climate strike next Friday, September 23rd, global climate strike. And it's my understanding that each of these global ones sort of have different demands and different impetuses. So it's sort of bringing something new to the fore. So can you tell us what the demands are of this upcoming strike? The big overarching focus, it's actually a hashtag because we're also a youth climate strike, um, is the people not profit. And that's really what we're, we're advocating for is at this stage in the climate crisis, there is a real choice to be made between prioritizing private interests or prioritizing people's safety and health and wellness. And that's what we're asking for. In terms of precise demands, um, we're really trying to target the root causes. So we're asking for an immediate phase or an immediate plan for a phase out of fossil fuels in Canada. Um, that also means our public money shouldn't go into subsidies to fossil fuels. We're asking for a just transition for workers, for communities that currently rely on this. Um, but we're also asking for all the supporting measures that are needed. So indigenous sovereignty over their lands, because we know that they're the best water and land protectors we have across these territories. Um, we're asking for investment in public health and public services, not only because these are low carbon jobs, low carbon services, but also because these will protect people as the parts of the climate crisis that we can't avoid unravel. Um, so really those, those aspects there. Um, and more generally, we're really asking for the burden to shift from this individual action that even our governments have been asking of us to governments holding accountable the big polluters. That's the fossil fuel companies, the car companies, 
big agriculture, I mean, we're really asking it to shift because I think as young people, there's nothing more exhausting than being told that uh, we were only born a few years ago and it's already our fault that things are falling apart. So that's the big ask. Maybe we can dive in now to what is actually happening on the 23rd. So on the 23rd, we're asking that anyone who can make it, students, teachers, workers, anyone, um, to join us at Queens Park at 2 p.m. We're going to begin with a rally. We're going to hear some from some lovely speakers and performers. So there'll be music there. Lots of opportunity to learn about the climate justice movement if you don't already know uh, much about it or if you want to learn more. And then we're also going to follow that rally with a march through the streets of Toronto. And can I tell you about some of the targets of that march? Just because I think we were very smart and sneaky about it. <laughs> Please <laughs> do. We're, star we're starting at Queen's Park, which is where our provincial government sit. And, and Megan and I have unfortunately had to be many, many times in front of Queen's Park asking for this government to take the climate crisis seriously. And then, I mean, details of exact exactly which block we're going to be on uh, are, you know, something for you to discover as you join us next Friday. Um, but we're going to pass near City Hall. There's a municipal election coming up, and we think it's so important that at the municipal level, uh, the mayor and the councillors take this seriously. And then we'll be passing through commercial centers and um, financial district because it's a little easy to just ask our government to, to do uh, all the heavy lifting when we know big polluters are private. Uh, so we're going to be going to see those, those investors and those C-suites in the financial district and, and also remind them that the pressure's on them as well. Awesome. And by any chance, do you want to talk about sort of the, the global nature of this? Yeah, so this is a global climate strike. So we'll be striking in Toronto, but there'll be people joining us across the world in their own cities, um, demanding their own things to their governments and the polluters in their countries. Um, so it's a really amazing feeling to know that you're marching alongside thousands of people in Toronto, but then there's also like hundreds of thousands across the globe. And if they're striking with Friday Street to Toronto, it will all be under the same hashtag of people not profit. Totally. And we're seeing more and more solidarity between countries where, you know, right now people from the global south and especially from for example, Pakistan and regions that are most affected by climate disruption right now are kind of asking us in the global north to strike twice as hard, twice as much, really, because they know that they're, be, they're being affected right now. So that's kind of the international feeling we're, we're getting as well. Yeah, that makes sense. If there's a certainly a time for global solidarity right now, uh, given the number of places that are being impacted in the upcoming you know, COP27. So... A bit of a shift gears here because y'all have been doing this again, as you mentioned, for quite some time. And I think it's interesting and useful to talk about the challenges. You know, the last big climate strike was right before the pandemic. We, we covered that live on the show in a fun, a fun way. We actually were like literally having people, I was on the ground, people were calling into the show. It was a really uh, interesting and fun vibe. And it was huge. Truly, truly massive. You know, a couple of days later, it successfully got the city of Toronto to declare a climate emergency. And there really felt like a ton of momentum going on uh, and moving towards climate change at the moment. Only, of course, five months later to be shut down to the pandemic. And from all the conversations I've had with, with activists, I can 
I'm, I'm certain that one of the big, that was a challenge. It's very hard to organize during the pandemic. So I'm curious if you two can talk about your experiences, you know, trying to do that, navigating the, navigating the pandemic and why it's so exciting to get back on the streets in a big way that we can do finally again in September. Yeah, it was a difficult moment. Megan, I think you should start because you've led a lot of Zoom strikes and they don't feel the same. Oh yeah, so I have a different perspective than Ali because I actually begun organizing as an online activist. When I joined Fridays for Future Toronto, it was at the beginning of COVID and it's definitely difficult to engage with people online and it's hard to connect with them because you can't have those like side conversations um and then obviously the most like the obvious part of it is you can't see the numbers you can't see people mobilizing for climate action in the streets and i think that's really powerful on social media and on media when you see thousands of people on the streets um there were some slight benefits though. I will say that because I probably wouldn't be organizing if I didn't have the time that the pandemic gave me off of school to join. So it was definitely difficult to maintain momentum, but in some ways I think it helped strengthen our organizing. That's so true. I'm so glad you bring that up because we actually had a massive amount of people requesting to join our group when the pandemic hit and it's probably because folks just had a lot of time and unfortunately couldn't spend that time with friends or family and so they probably thought it contributed to something bigger which is awesome and, and a lot of these people like Megan stayed now that things are, are changing a little bit um I'll say in terms of the way we operate it was it was really difficult because what we do is not deep policy analysis. There's groups that do that and, and we're so thankful for that. But what we do is not this kind of stuff that really could only be done online. We like to block business as usual. We like to be visible in the street. We like to speak to our peers like by being in the street and having them come up to us. So all that was, was really um, challenged. And we, we played around with webinars, with online strikes, with all these things, just to realize that it was more more worth our time to go and have a socially distanced strike, even though that asked for way more hours of logistical planning. We had to literally chalk out the six feet apart on the ground, um, but that was still more interesting for us than having to stay online and kind of keep ourselves to that. Right, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, honestly, lovely to hear that there were some benefits and opportunities created um, and it wasn't all negative because, a lot of negativity going around about the pandemic, and so the fact that it gave some folks a bit more time to to really engage in, in issues that care that they that matter to them is is lovely to hear. And so it's interesting that you mentioned that in part because I one of the barriers that, that relate to the next question is probably time, which once you were given some chances to experience some time, you saw you know a bunch of people coming forward. But you know, given your your time with the Fight the Future. I, I'd be curious to know more about what you see as the biggest barriers preventing youth from, from joining the climate action. Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is lack of time. Um, I'm currently in my grade 12 year. I just started senior year and I have all of my activist friends warning me, climate organizing and grade 12 year, you're going to struggle. It's a lot. Um, and I definitely agree because these are the most important grades ever. I'm supposed to be focusing on school. Everyone's telling me to focus on school. And then we have 
this climate crisis that I personally cannot ignore. So I'm organizing and right now I'm trying to like fit meetings in during my lunchtime and it's just a lot to manage. So I think a lot of high school students and youth are dealing with school, extracurriculars, applying to universities, et cetera, that they don't even want to think about the climate crisis or about the climate movement, or they don't even have time to think about it um, because it's definitely not a light topic or thing to jump into. For sure, I think, I mean, Megan knows it best because she's really in that in that role right now. Um, even, you know, when I, I started organizing to this level, I was in university and for sure there was, the time constraint, of course, and the stress. Um, but there was also this feeling often of these are odd ways to spend your 20s. And there's many times where I'd be like, I'm really making a choice between hanging out with friends and being on a Zoom call on a Friday evening. I mean, those are, you know, you have real moments when you're like, is it really worth it? And if you're not with peers, that happens even more. Um, so I think that's an additional barrier that people will have. And, and the way you overcome it is really to start making friends within the climate movement so you can do both at once but for for a moment it's it's really difficult um and then i think we have to be honest there's there's for sure a lot of accessibility barriers just in the sense that we start using a lot of lingo when we're all together a lot of jargon and so when you're a young person and you're 16 and you are interested in the issue but you really haven't you know you don't have a master's in it it can be really daunting to join and i think Megan and I often have conversations about how to not sound like nerds when you're trying to recruit people because <laughs> particles per million of carbon doesn't mean anything to a 16 year old, right? So that's that's also a barrier. Yeah, for sure. Trying to find ways to, to talk about this that is both of accessible but also accurate is to me the biggest challenge. You know, like I've the number of times I've gone back and forth between like, do we say GHGs here? And they're like, no one understands what that means. But you're like, but greenhouse gas emissions is what we care about. It's not just carbon. And it gets like you go and like you spend like 20 minutes going back and forth about that single conversation. And then that times, you know, you know, parts per million, man, you're really getting, you're really getting dive, you're diving deep on that one. Um but yeah, that's a, that's, those are great points. Thank you so much. And so, and so the follow-up there again, I guess, is actually just like for the folks and youth who are coming to you, who you do come across, who want to get involved in climate action, but see these barriers and have a hard time imagining themselves overcoming them. What's your go-to advice to, to get them sort of started out in that journey? We take whatever we can offer and really try to make it interesting to them in the sense that People don't join the climate movement for their volunteer hours most of the time, but if we can sign off on their volunteer hours for high school, then let's make that a thing, right? Um, folks might not come here for a recommendation letter, but once we've once we've seen that they're you know dedicated to the cost, of course we'll write them that recommendation for the university. It's just to acknowledge that we're not gonna you know go on a moral high horse and say you shouldn't benefit at all from your organizing. We we kind of try to meet people halfway and, and once they've shown that they're committed and they've really put time into organizing, we're happy to do these things. Um, and it's not like a glamorous or nice answer, but it is the truth that that folks sometimes just need that. You know, it's already unpaid work. It's not necessarily in the spotlight, but at least if we can provide those things. So that's one way. Um, the other way is certainly to try as much as possible um, to get them to start where they're at. And so, you know, we've spent a lot of time figuring out how much can we dissect 
the actions so that people can just tap into them at their level. If it's just people just need to print this poster and put it in this one classroom, if it's just do this one local chalking action in front of their bank, like trying to make it so that it doesn't, so we do most of the legwork and they can just put in the few hours they've had in the month. Um, and Megan, you've also had way more experience recently with, with high schoolers, which you might wanna share. Yeah, as I mentioned before, the time constraint. So I'd say my biggest recommendation for anyone that wants to get involved is find something you're already doing and then make that your climate activism. I think often when we talk about the climate movement, we think of um, climate activists, strikes, and like posters, banners at an action. But climate activism and this climate movement is anything working towards climate justice. So if you're a musician and you want to write a song about the climate crisis or you're an artist, you want to post about that, you can write poems, anything. Even if you're an athlete, I'm sure you could do something there. I play basketball, do like a free throw competition and education with it. I'll figure out how to do that one. Um, but really tie it into your hobbies, make it part of your lifestyle, because in the end, it's going to affect every single person. And therefore, every single person should be in the climate movement automatically. Perhaps link to that, just to finish off, this is advice that works for adults as well, by the way, it's not just for youth trying to get involved, but sometimes we underestimate the biggest part of our day, whereas, you know, when you're a student, the biggest part of your day is being a student, if you're an adult, it's in your job, and that might even be where your, your power lies, um, if you just want to do your normal school school day, but ask at every class, but how does this relate to the climate crisis? I can promise you by the end of the day, teachers are going to be speaking to each other and saying, okay, we need a curriculum on this. And that's your climate activism for the month. I mean, really, but you have to actually do it. And then perhaps it's having that idea or having that courage, but I'm glad Megan brought this up because you don't need to have a megaphone, although it's, it's also fun to have one. That point you made there at the end about how some of, sometimes the most power you have is within the systems you're already in. And just reminding people about the fact that climate change exists and asking those questions, you know, especially there's a project being run right now by Project Drawdown, which is designed to help people make every job a climate job. And it's sort of basically designed to hold, um, to hold big corporations that you're an employee of to sort of to account. And it's like a set of series, like to make sure that your company itself is not a greenwashing company, but actually like how to set up an internal price on carbon and some of these much more deeper changes that you can try to do. And so I do love that, that fact that it doesn't have to be on the street activism that, that you're doing. There's so many other ways that you can push for change. And so on that sort of element of sort of learning and experiencing the difference in, you know, your one type activism and others, I'm curious if both of you can talk about what you think you've learned during your time as activists uh, that you think would benefit uh, the greater climate movement? I think the largest thing that I've thought about ever since um, I started organizing, and I think a lot of people within the movement already see it, and we've touched on it a bit today, but there's a huge gap between people who are in the mo movement and people who are not. And the biggest goal of mine um, throughout organizing this strike and just every all the other organizing I do in the future is to kind of fill that gap even between my sister and I here I am I'm organizing a global climate strike my sister is literally in her room next door and she doesn't even know if she's going to attend the strike right we, we grew up in the same household um 
so I'm really just trying to figure out how I can fill that gap and how do some people see the climate crisis in this way that we need to immediately react to it we need to go on the streets um, and then some people are just like oh yeah good job keep doing your work um, so my biggest goal ever within this movement beyond all the other work that I'm doing is to educate those around me in my school my friends my family and just have conversations about climate justice. I do it at the dinner table most nights. Dinner table is your first panel. That's always how I felt. It's the toughest one too. Um, I love that you said that, Megan, because that's actually kind of where my learning went, but almost the follow-up of that, which is I never realized before, you know, starting my own initiative and really taking leadership and driving things how many people were waiting for someone else to start it and then were willing to put their time and full trust behind. The support I had within the first weeks of saying, hey, we should do this in Toronto, I did not expect that. And it, it just a lot of people were saying, I was just waiting for someone to say it, which is a little scary when you know you have a huge climate crisis and people are just waiting for someone else to say it. And so the, the this is turning into advice. It sounds like a... <laughs> like a grandma but it's true that don't wait until you have a master's in the topic don't wait until you're a full expert don't wait until you went to a leadership camp I've never done a single leadership course but at the end of the day uh, you know just getting something started was what was needed and and it's still true like years after and so to pivot one more time before we sort of come all the way back to this conversation about climate strikes the work Part of the reason I think it's hard to engage in climate change is because it's scary. I would say it is both one of the reasons that's difficult to engage and also one of the reasons why people so feel so driven to engage. It sort of becomes this back and forth. Um, I'm curious, how do you experience climate anxiety? And if so, how do you deal with it? First of all, yes, climate anxiety is a big, big part of my life. And, and as much as... I hear and I read these thousands of studies saying scaring people won't scare them into action. That is not true in my life. I was definitely scared by an IPCC report into action. But for me, my climate anxiety doesn't necessarily just come from what I know of the science. It comes from the disconnect that I keep seeing between more and more government and industry ads saying, we're going to do this. We're successfully doing this. We're on it. No worries. And then you read a science report and they're like, they're not on it. Nothing is being done. And so the anxiety is from that gap because I'm thinking it's not that we're trying our best and we're not succeeding. It's that we're not trying at all. And so what is it going to take for us to try? So that's really where it comes from. And um, it's so cliche to say it, but what, what solves the only thing that addresses that is activism to push people to actually try to solve the crisis. And I've, you know, I, I do try other methods to calm anxiety down, but at the end of the day, nothing will calm it like a protest. I agree with everything Ali just said. Um, there's nothing better than screaming into a megaphone. That is, it just relieves everything that has kind of built up through the organizing process of the strike. Um, and for me, a large part of the anxiety that I feel about um, the climate crisis is how isolating it feels as a youth to be in this movement and to like look at all of my friends 
who are not organizing as well. And I'm just not able to relate to that many people around me. Like I'll just be sitting in class, like I'm organizing a climate strike right now and half these people don't even know that. And that brings a lot of anxiety um, to me because like, how do people, oh my gosh, this is hard to talk about, but how do people not know that we're in a climate crisis? How do these people not feel eager to get onto the streets? And that's something I'm really hoping I can change within my school this year and kind of mobilize more people. Um, but climate anxiety, yes, a lot. Every single day, I literally set up my phone and I rant to it and I cry to it. It's a real thing. And I really hope that more people can kind of see into the movement and get involved. Which brings me to a perfect segue to this last question, which is if folks are hearing this and they do want to get involved, how can they do so next Friday? Next Friday, you just have to meet us at Queen's Park, 2 p.m. and march with us, bring anything you want that makes a lot of noise because we're trying to make a lot of noise to disrupt those board meetings, uh, bring funky signs so we can make it in the media cycle for days if needed. Um, and most importantly, if you can't join and you can't be there in person for a variety of reasons, amplify. I mean, seriously, one of the best things you can do is send an article about the climate strike on your family group chat or on your class group chat and say, hey, why don't we do this locally? Or what would be our version of this? Start the conversation and then join us whenever you can and in whatever way you can. Yes, just show up, please, whether that be physically at the action. We'd love to have you there. Or if it's even just talking to your one friend about the climate strike, anything we can do to build the movement is going to benefit us all. Um, and I can plug our website as well if you want to learn more information about the strike. It's fridaysforfuturetio.org, TO as in Toronto. And then our primary social media account is Instagram, which is at fridaysforfuturetio. And then from there, you can find our other social accounts. And if you're interested in getting more involved, there are opportunities to volunteer. Thank you to so much, Ali Rigeau and Megan Bro, organizers with Fridays for Future Toronto. If you're in the city, go. Next Friday, go to Queen's Park and meet them for the Global Climate Strike. If you're not in the city, there are climate strikes happening all over Canada and the globe, so I'm sure you can find one close to you as well. Thank you two so much, and have see you on the streets. See you on the streets. Thanks so much. Sure.